I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health, to brain and nervous system support, to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. Probiotics are a huge and growing industry as people have realized the importance of the gut, and specifically the gut microbiome for their health. We have thousands and thousands of published scientific studies on this topic, and we now see articles about this on the cover of popular magazines and mainstream online publications. Uh, I think even the average person on the street is aware of how important their gut health is to maintaining their overall health and longevity. And probiotics, of course, have been a a hot topic for the past several years as a way of modulating the gut microbiota and repairing some of the damage that the modern lifestyle causes to the gut. The problem is that many probiotic companies are using strains and formulations that date back to the 1970s when our understanding of the gut microbiome was still in its infancy and we didn't have modern DNA sequencing and uh, proteomic testing techniques that have shed much more light on what's actually living inside of our gut, uh, which species are there, which species are the most important in terms of contributing to gut health, and how we might be able to leverage those species therapeutically. So the issue is that we have learned an enormous amount about what's happening in the microbiome through modern testing techniques, but our Uh, interventions and therapeutic approaches have not caught up to that research. And that's what I'm going to be talking with Colleen Cutliff about today. She's the CEO and co-founder of Pendulum Therapeutics, which is a leading microbiome solutions company. 
She has over 20 years of experience leading and managing biology teams in academia, pharmaceuticals, and biotech. And prior to starting Pendulum, she was the senior manager of biology at Pacific Biosciences and a scientist at Elon Pharmaceuticals. She has a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from Johns Hopkins and a BA in biochem from Wellesley College. So we're going to talk about the problem with current probiotics. Uh, We're going to talk about novel probiotics that have proven efficacy but have not been available due to manufacturing, significant manufacturing challenges that have recently been solved. We're going to talk about what the future of probiotics might look like um, given our new understanding of what's going on in the gut um, and how we might be able to modulate the gut microbiome with these, these new interventions. And we'll talk about some of the challenges and risks that scientists face in implementing these new solutions for human health. Uh, This was a fascinating episode for me. I learned a lot, and I hope you do too. Let's dive in. Colleen, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So let's uh, start off with a little context here. Probiotics have become a big industry, uh, and for good reason. There's a lot of therapeutic potential with probiotics. Gut health is a major issue that many people are uh, struggling with, and we now know from abundant research that uh, the health of our gut is directly linked with our overall health and and, and basically every chronic disease that we know of, I, I think, at this point. So it's a, the stakes are high and it's a really important area of focus, but as is often the case when there is a, you know, proliferation of new companies trying to address a problem, particularly in the supplement world, there, there's a lot, you know, uh, there's, there's some high quality products and some approaches that are based in science. And then there's, let's just say, stuff that's not high quality or based in science. So what's, what's the, your assessment of the problems with the current probiotic marketplace, if you will? Yeah, I think um, you're right to start with all the big opportunities around the gut. I think that um, their probiotics have always sort of been a part of our lives, probiotics and yogurts, but people are starting to realize that there's more opportunity beyond just what's out there. And, you know, one of the things that people don't necessarily know about probiotics is that there hasn't really been a new ingredient in the last 50 years. So there've been a lot of new strains discovered, but they're very similar to the strains that are already on the shelves. And what's happened over the last decade is there's this entirely new science that's emerged called microbiome science, where you're really tackling the microbiome as its own organ, looking at all the different microbes that are in there, probiotics or bacteria, you know, one of the types of microbes, and trying to use that data to identify what are some novel strains or formulations that can really be used to tackle diseases. And, you know, there are a handful of companies that are really at the forefront of trying to identify, you know, what I kind of thinking about as next generation probiotics. And so there's two challenges. One is how do you discern between the probiotics that are on the shelves today, ones that are really giving you high quality truth in the bottle kind of products. And then how do you discern what is all the new stuff coming out? Is it actually new and what does it do for me? And what can I expect from this next generation of probiotics that are derived from microbiome science? So what are some of the candidates of that next generation from your perspective? 
Well, um, you know, speaking with personal bias, I think Pendulum is is definitely um, among the small handful that are really generating novel formulations and and novel strains. And and I'll say this, which is that, you know, the reason microbiome science has only become a science in the last decade or so is because DNA sequencing technologies have only become affordable and usable in the last decade or so. And that's really the technology that's at the heart of creating maps of your microbiome and identifying these novel strains. And then the second thing is using that data to identify, you know, how do you isolate these strains? And then how do you grow these anaerobic bacteria, which is sort of a unique characteristic of these strains. And so almost every company that is using that data-driven DNA sequencing-driven um, analytics and then uh, creating these anaerobic manufacturing capabilities are going after pharmaceutical drugs. Um, Pendulum is really the only company that is applying that towards consumer, uh, direct-to-consumer products. So we really aren't, I like to say, like we don't really have any competitors at the exact moment. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk about that because that's... Um... I'm I'm happy to talk a little bit more about pendulum as we go. Um, I was thinking more along the lines of the the strains or new um, probiotic interventions that you're exploring, like acromancia, and and if you could just explain for the listeners a little the difference between aerobic and anaerobic organisms, the history of probiotics, and what has mostly been the focus, and and then why it's both why there's an opportunity for anaerobic uh, organisms and why that's also been a challenge to create probiotic, you know, uh, supplements that, that have those strains. Yeah, I think um, just to explain the anaerobic thing, um, it, it's really, again, it kind of gets back to this microbiome science. Your gut microbiome and where all these key microbes are that are actually responsible for um, your health are located in an area that has no oxygen in it. And that's essentially a definition of anaerobic. Anaerobic means there's no oxygen. Aerobic means there is oxygen. So all the probiotics on the shelves right now are um, aerobic or partially aerobic. And so you manufacture them and oxygen can be in the system and it's no big deal. But my prediction is that all of the probiotics, the next generation ones that are going to come from microbiome science are going to be anaerobic. And that means that you have to manufacture them without any oxygen, literally one molecule of oxygen in the manufacturing plant and the whole batch is dead. And so it's a real challenge to, to develop a, a methodology for being able to grow these strains. But these are the key strains for our health. And, you know, we, I can sort of talk about some of the correlative studies that have been done over time showing that people who are healthy versus people with metabolic issues, um, you know, from obesity to type 2 diabetes, really show that they are people with obesity and, and type 2 diabetes are low or missing some of these key anaerobic strains. And you can also look to some of these gut microbiome tests that are out there right now. Most of the things that they're listing for you um, that are important are these anaerobic strains. And one of the keystone strains that's been starting to emerge is called Acromancia mucinophila, sort of a mouthful. Um, but it's not something that you'll, you know, if you look at the labels of probiotics right now, you're going to see a lot of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. You're not going to see anything with acromancia. Um, and that's because it's a pretty new strain that's been discovered. Um, but what's been discovered about it is that it is low or missing in these uh, microbiome testing reports for people with a wide variety of conditions, not just obesity, but also inflammatory issues, immune issues, 
um, skin disorders. And so this strain in particular is super interesting and I'm happy to go into more detail about it. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the research on acromantia. It's it is fascinating, and um, I I agree that you know I think to some extent probably a lot of the probiotics that we have available to us now have been a, a result of how challenging it 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 is to to create products with um, anaerobic strains. Um, not necessarily because we yeah the aerobic strains are the best ones, although I think they have some benefit. Um, but but because of the manufacturing challenge and and, and po possibly also because before we had DNA sequencing and and the the comprehensive gut microbiome analytics available to us we didn't we weren't as clear on what you know these relationships that you just mentioned um, before we go on to more about acromantia uh, and and what it seems to do for us is that uh, are those correlative relationships where you see lower levels of acromantia in conditions like obesity, inflammatory bowel disease, et cetera, cross-cultural. Uh, because I know that in the case of bifidobacteria and some other strains, there's some contradictory findings where, in, you know, in some cultures you can see who have very healthy guts, like the Hadza for, in Africa, the bifidobacteria is pretty low. Whereas in Western cultures, it you know high high bifidobacteria is correlated with with positive gut health. Is is the acromantia relationship uh, consistent across all cultures, or is that mostly in Western populations? I think not speaking for some of these um, isolated tribes where you know they've really had the the perk of not having to interact with anything Western. Um, generally speaking, low acromantia does appear to be an issue um, worldwide. So there have been studies, you know, in, in the US certainly, but also in Asia, as well as Europe, um, showing the correlation between low acromantia and a variety of disease states. Great. So let's, let's actually back up a little bit and talk about some of the gut health relationships that have been fleshed out with these, you know, DNA sequencing and just some of the innovations that, that have come about, you know, through Pendulum. I'm thinking about things like the connection between short-chain fatty acids and glucose regulation. So we could maybe call that the gut metabolic access. Um, I'm thinking about uh, mucin regulation and modulation of the inflammatory response. And then, of course, the gut-brain axis, which has been known for well over 100 years, but I would say in the last, you know, 20 years is getting a ton more attention and to the point where um, we now have a model of understanding depression, like the gut inflammatory cytokine model of depression, where it's basically an inflammatory condition that starts in the gut. So tell us a little bit about what you've been able to learn about these pathways between the gut and other parts of the body. Sure. Yeah, I think when we think about the the gut and the role it plays in a variety of different diseases, um, you can find, you know, thousands and thousands of these correlative studies. And those are interesting, but that's not the same as 
causation or having kind of a, a therapeutic potential. There are these fecal microbiome transplants, which are uh, exactly what they sound like. You basically put stool from one person into another. Um, and those, uh, while they're you know not exactly a fun dinner cocktail conversation, um, have been really effective in demonstrating that if you change a person's microbiome by putting somebody else's microbiome you know, into a person, you can actually change their disease state. And so um, we think about the gut metabolic uh, axis here, there have been studies showing that if you transplant stool from a healthy person into a person with diabetes, you can actually improve their insulin response. And that tells you that there's something in that gut microbiome that by itself ought to be able to improve this. And so when you dig a little deeper into that, um, one of the key pathways involved is the metabolism of fiber into short chain fatty acids, and particularly butyrate. So you know, we all know a high fiber diet is really good for us. We're supposed to be eating lots of fruits and vegetables. And one of the benefits of these fruits and vegetables is that uh, when they're metabolized by our gut microbiome, they get metabolized into these short chain fatty acids. And butyrate, when it gets produced, binds to these G protein coupled receptors, which then triggers GLP-1 response and insulin and glucose control. And so when you don't have these microbes, the fiber you're eating is literally going right through you. And so these microbes that we've really honed in on are involved in that pathway of metabolizing fiber into butyrate and uh, understanding you know, that that butyrate is actually the key to increasing GLP-1 production. So you know, that's really one of the key pathways along the gut metabolic chain. Around the inflammation world, and, and really even beyond that, is this this idea of your gut lining. And many people may have heard about leaky gut, um, which is to say that your gut is like a fence. And so uh, without uh, care, it can start to get holes in it or fall apart. And so when you have that problem, you have the ability for these small molecules that are supposed to be inside the gut, making their way into your bloodstream that results in a heightened inflammatory response. But then conversely, you also have molecules that can make their way into the gut that are really not supposed to be there. And so having a... Um, appropriately regulated gut lining is important as sort of the heart of gut health. And so there is, and this is what makes Acromantia mucinophilus so special. It's the only strain that's been identified that literally lives in the gut lining. It lives in that mucin layer of the gut lining, and it is responsible for regulating um, how thick or thin that mucin layer is, and therefore the integrity of your gut lining. And so when you lose it, you lose the integrity of your gut lining, and now you have all these inflammatory issues. And you know, people for, for for different people, inflammation shows up in different ways, ranging from you know how you feel on the inside to even what shows up on the outside on your skin. And then the third one that that you alluded to, the gut brain axis, uh, I think is is certainly one of the most fascinating ones. And uh, I think depression and anxiety, uh, there is a clear connection between the um, small molecules that your gut can generate uh, and how your body responds. And actually, interestingly, one of the things that we found with our product is that we're really focused on the you know gut metabolic and then the gut inflammatory axes here, but people who are on glucose control, so they have the ability to increase butyrate production and to improve their gut lining, 60% of our customers have reported fewer sugar cravings. And so we don't really totally understand that, trying to unpack that, but clearly um, there's something about your microbiome's ability to change the way that your, your brain is actually creating cravings. Um, yeah, I would that imagine that's kind of some kind of feedback system, the same that we get when our metabolism is functioning optimally, where we 
you know, there's, there's the hormonal feedback between uh, like with ghrelin and leptin and all, all of those hormones with when we eat and that sends us a, a signal to the brain saying, okay, <laughs> you know, we're, we're done for now. We've got what we need. Um, I've always suspected with like strong sugar cravings and disrupted, you know, metabolic function, there's a strong gut component there as well. So that's not surprising to me. I mean, I, I, it's, it'll be fascinating to find out what the real causal chain is there or the mechanism, but just anecdotally and in terms of like my clinical work with patients, that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. I should have talked to you before we designed our clinical trial, because it's not even one of the things we measured. We didn't, we didn't realize that connection. <laughs> and that's a big deal, right? Because people struggle with that. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of vicious cycle, I think, with metabolic issues like diabetes or even pre-diabetes or even just high normal blood sugar, where there is a tendency to have more sugar cravings when you're in that state. And that becomes a vicious cycle where, you know, the more dysregulated your blood sugar becomes, the, the more the sugar cravings can intensify and then it becomes very difficult to get out of that cycle. So it's exciting to have a, a therapeutic intervention that can not only help with, you know, the measurable, you know, a, you know, actually reducing blood sugar and, and, you know, increasing short chain fatty acids and doing all of those things, but, but just on a more behavioral level, act, uh, help with people making uh, choices that are more supportive for their health and, and healing. That's, that's pretty exciting. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, to, to the, co the, the contrast of being in that vicious cycle where you're craving more bad foods and then you're eating more bad foods and then you're craving more, you know, in this case, it gives people a little bit of a jump start to a healthy lifestyle and they can feel good about uh, making good choices. And then you start to get on this virtuous cycle, which I think is really nice. And one of the other things about um, acromancia is uh, it, you know, from, from the genes that it has putatively, it can help increase GABA production. And I think that also has, um, you know, potential real, real benefits. Yeah, that's a fascinating connection. Maybe we could linger on that a little bit because uh, as I'm, some of my longtime listeners will know, you know, that there's, I think, 400 times more serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain and 500 times more melatonin in the gut than there is in the brain. There's also a lot of GABA in that, that whole system. And, and so when you think about that, it becomes pretty clear that the gut, I mean, and, and some, of course, some researchers and scientists do refer to the gut as the second brain and, or even, or, you know, as the enteric nervous system. So what, you know, like in, in your, uh, I know this hasn't necessarily been the focus for you in your research, you focus more on metabolic issues. Um, but have you learned anything more about the way that the gut is interfacing with the brain and how acromancia and other interventions can influence that? Yeah. I mean, I think as with many things in life, you kind of end up on a path by accident. And so I think you're right. We started looking at the metabolic um, relationship and then kind of got really curious about this, this gut brain thing that we were starting to observe in the form of cravings and people reporting reduced anxiety and things like that. And so I think that um, one of the most interesting kind of R&D uh, set of experiments that we're doing are really centered around the gut brain axis. And we've been doing this in collaboration with Johns Hopkins. 
and 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 it's really around um, neurogenesis. So I actually didn't know this, uh, but you know you have um, neurons in your brain, and when they die, they're kind of done for. But you have neurons in your gut also, and when they die, um, new ones generate. So you have this constant kind of neurogeneration that's happening in your gut. Um, and in some of these diseases like Parkinson's, and actually I started my career working in pharma, we were trying to find small molecule drugs for Parkinson's disease. We were super focused on the brain and these plaques in the brain and how do we get things in there to reduce these plaques? Well, it turns out that your um, neurons in your gut also develop these plaques, just like they do in the brain and in Parkinson's disease. And it appears that they develop first in the gut before they show up in the brain. And so the current hypothesis is that um, it's actually the neurons in your gut that start to have the issues, and then they misfire um, these uh, neurotransmitters to the brain, and then actually move the problem from the gut neurons to the brain neurons. And some of the exciting work that we've been doing with Johns Hopkins is um, identifying strains and formulations that can increase that neurogenesis. So increase that turnover in your gut in order to keep your gut neurons always kind of fresh and young and uh, from degenerating. And so I think that has implications across a wide variety of what we thought of as traditionally brain specific diseases. Um, and I think just a huge amount of opportunity uh, there as we think about you know, what does it mean to age healthy? What does it mean to try to prevent some of these, the onset of some of these diseases? Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. I've been a huge fan of Thrive Market since they launched eight years ago. I love having my favorite healthy products shipped right to my door at a fraction of the price I'd pay elsewhere. I use Thrive to order not only pantry staples like coconut milk, dark chocolate, and collagen peptides, but also toxin-free personal and household products. Thrive makes it really easy to find what you're looking for, whether that's paleo, low-carb or keto, or gluten-free. You can filter by more than 90 values and lifestyles to find what works for you. I also love Thrive's values as a company. They offer carbon neutral shipping, and when you become a Thrive member, you sponsor a family in need. Join Thrive Market today and get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash revolutionhealth, all one word, to get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash revolution health. So we know from observational research that there's a correlation between uh, um, acromancia and various disease states. What do we know so far about clinical interventions with acromancia? Because often there's, you know, it's one thing to see a correlation. It's another thing to see a causal relationship. And it's still another thing then to develop a treatment or an intervention that alters that causal relationship. 
Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that we've been really excited about at Pendulum is the ability to run clinical trials with formulations that have acromancia. And um, one of our key trials was a placebo-controlled double-blinded randomized trial that was published in BMJ that showed that people who were on this formulation with acromancia versus placebo um, saw that their A1C was lowered by 0.6 percentage points and their blood glucose spikes lowered by 33%. And um, that is the first and the only clinical trial um, that has that formulation that has shown that kind of improvement. And, you know, in our, we, we brought this product to market about 18 to 24 months ago and have been super excited to see that uh, customers are also seeing, 90% of our customers also see a lowered A1C and blood glucose spikes. Um, and it's not just people with type 2 diabetes, which is what we did our clinical trials in. It's also people with pre-diabetes. And so you have people that are able to move from the diabetic state to the pre-diabetic state and from the pre-diabetic state to the healthy state simply by modifying their microbiome, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And was that the only, was that in that trial, was that the only intervention or was it combined with any other treatment? No, we deliberately, well, I should say most people that were in that trial were also already on metformin. Um, and so this was on top of metformin, which is a pretty effective um, intervention in and of itself. They didn't but, start or stop any other treatment. So they, if they were already taking metformin, they continued and then they just added the acromancia. That's right. You couldn't uh, change your medications. And also we asked people to not change their diets uh, because we wanted this to uh, be um, independent of any dietary changes. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's, yeah, that's pretty significant, you know, uh, particularly a, a 30 plus percent drop in post, post-meal glucose spikes. Uh, we know that post-meal glucose excursions, as they're sometimes called, where you, where your blood sugar ventures into undesirable territory, shall we say, um, that can be really damaging for metabolic health, even if you have normal fasting blood sugars. And uh, there are cases, and I've seen in my clinical experience, where that's the sole problem. You know, people can have normal fasting glucose, but still be experiencing these post-meal glucose spikes, and that can put them at risk for a whole bunch of uh, complications down the line. So it's it's interesting to me that there was not only a change in A1C, but change in those glucose spikes. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about, you know, other benefits that people experience when they're able to lower their blood glucose spikes, even if they don't have diabetes, because I myself wore a continuous glucose monitor and did a placebo controlled trial, you know, the chef should always eat their cooking. And so um, I, I did this and I saw for, for me, first of all, I knew when I was on intervention because my workouts were actually stronger. So for me, this showed up um, as uh, just kind of better workouts. But when I looked at my continuous glucose uh, data, I could see that all of my spikes and crashes were minimized when I was on the intervention. Um, and I don't have diabetes or prediabetes. So, you know, from, I am curious to hear what, what would one expect if they don't have diabetes to see if they weren't measuring with a glucose monitor? I think the two biggest things in my experience are st stable energy and stable mood. So, uh, I mean, everyone who's listening to this has had some experience in their lifetime of a, a blood sugar drop and then the, I mean, hangry, right? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a word that we have in our culture that 
I think everybody has had at least one experience with, and particularly anyone who has kids has been on the receiving end of hangry <laughs> experiences. Um, so, so yeah, hangriness is is one, and then uh, which is kind of a combination, I think, of energy and mood. But uh, the other would just be stable energy levels throughout the day, and I think. You know, one of the most common experiences that I hear about from people who switch from like a standard American diet with, you know, massive intake of refined carbohydrates to even just a, a paleo type of diet or, 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 you know, maybe even further like a low carbohydrate or even ketogenic diet. The number one thing that I hear from patients in response to that change is is just wow i just have stable i can just go all day like i used to have these incredible crashes and you know after lunch where i just feel like i was a zombie and i couldn't work or do anything or i'd have to take a nap in the afternoon and now i just i feel like i can just you know power through the whole day and and still have energy to spare at the end of the day and then you know likewise people can often go longer without eating without without getting hangry you know they can miss a meal and still not feel like the world's coming to an end. Uh, so th those are probably the two main ones that I see. Yeah. And it makes sense because you're not on this roller coaster ride all day long of, you know, highs and lows, but you're really stabilizing it. W one of the other things we've heard about uh, people reporting is uh, reduced brain fog. I wonder what you think about that link. For sure. I mean, and that's probably also one of the the number one benefits that people report from a keto or low carbohydrate diet, of course, is, 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 you know, mental sharpness. And as most people listening to this podcast know, ketogenic diets are, are often used for lots of different brain conditions, epilepsy, but uh, Im improving memory, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, there's improvements with ketogenic diets. So there's definitely something going on there with the, glucose regulation in the brain being perhaps impacted with metabolic dysfunction. You know, some people refer to Alzheimer's as type three diabetes, but even at a lower, you know, we're not talking necessarily about that scale of problem, but even just brain fog could have something to do with impaired glucose processing in the system, including the brain. And when that is evened out with, you know, more stable blood sugar levels, it makes sense to me that that, you know, cognitive function would also improve. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most, and, and again, you're, you're not surprised by any of this, but surprising for me who is trying to tackle, you know, diabetes to understand now, have a deep appreciation for the fact that improving the way your body metabolizes sugars is at the heart of so many things that are, don't feel like they're related to diabetes at all, right? Your energy levels, um, your brain fog, your cognitive function, neuroinflammation, all of these things that um, all of us, I think, kind of experience as we get older are linked to our uh, reduced ability to manage how our body processes sugars. Even things, as, as you know, like skin health because um, diabetes affects blood flow, which you know can lead to peripheral neuropathy and that can... Uh, impact circulation, which is why you can, you know, people get edema in their legs and they can have retinopathy and issues with the eyes. I mean, it really affects the entire, every system of the body. And I think we're still learning the extent to which metabolic function, blood sugar regulation impact every system of the body. I mean, we haven't even started, we haven't talked about hormones yet, like cortisol and um, sex hormones like progesterone and estrogen and how closely they're linked to 
blood sugar regulation, but that's another major influence. I think that's um, maybe in future studies you might might explore. Well, and it's interesting too because there have been you know a reasonable number of studies showing that when women go through their menstrual cycle or go through menopause, um, you know, their microbiome is changing, and particularly you know having depletion in some of these key strains that we know are associated with blood glucose management. Absolutely. So, you know, what else have you learned in this process that's been surprising um, or maybe just something that you wasn't really part of your uh, focus or protocol, but that has been useful? Um, well, the whole the whole building of this company and these products has been one surprise after another. <laughs> um, I, I think discovering that when we talk about the probiotics that are out there right now, we are only talking about a fraction of a percentage of all the strains that exist in our microbiome. That tells you that there's so much left to uncover and to understand. Um, I think the the second challenge, besides understanding like how vast this microbiome science you know is and is going to be, is understanding um, how to manufacture the strains. So this whole anaerobic thing and and having to create an entirely closed manufacturing plant. I'll tell you a funny story. Today, I just sat in a meeting where, um, so the way you keep oxygen out of your manufacturing system is you pump nitrogen in. Uh, you know, oxygen is everywhere around us. And so you have to just be replacing it with nitrogen. And um, we just had to put some systems into our plant safety systems to measure the oxygen levels just in the air of the plant for our employees because the people who are on the manufacturing floor are also getting exposed to less oxygen. And so um, having to make sure that it's only the bacteria that's you know, oxygen and not the people. Yeah, so, so manufacturing was, was, a, was another challenge. But I think the third, and you alluded to this earlier, is there's sort of the science and the theoretical. And then there's the reality of how do you actually change a person's microbiome and how do you change it in a way that helps them with their health? And so kind of drawing that line between you know, the microbiome science and actually health solutions has been, um, I think, uh, you know, an, an important one for us to focus on. And then I think I've been surprised, particularly with type two diabetes, in you know, there's definitely not going to be a one. I'm I, I'm an advocate for the microbiome, but I don't think that's going to be your one solution. It's such a complex disease, and you know what leads us to have such huge obesity problems both in the US and globally is much more complicated than just um, your microbiome or your GLP-1 or anything like that. And so we introduced, when we when we launched our product, complementary nutrition coaching. And this was, uh, to be totally frank, started as sort of a marketing thing. Um, but what I've come to realize is that people stay on our product. We have very high retention and it's even higher when they have the nutrition coaching because they're learning what foods are beneficial for them. But more importantly, they've got like kind of somebody in their corner helping them through um, just trashy times and helping them get through that. And so the, um, the mental state of mind and the role that that plays, you know, with your behavior and then with your microbiome, they're so intertied with each other. And so I hadn't appreciated as much that that, that emotional support and that, you know, the food is the fuel for your microbiome, which is the engine and like how all these things really are important to pull together in, in totality. And, and again, you're probably not going to be surprised by that concept at all, but I, but I was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if you know this, but we have a, a 
been training coaches for the past few years, health coaches. So we've trained uh, over a thousand coaches in 50 countries. So I'm a big believer in health coaching, uh, obviously. And yeah, I think you can't really, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet. So, you know, probiotic or any other supplement could certainly help if you're eating a poor diet, but it's not going to have nearly the impact that it would have if you're also eating plenty of fermentable fiber and nutrient dense whole foods, you know, the, the things that actually provide the nutrients that the gut needs to, to thrive and function optimally, that, that those, those things go hand in hand uh, for me. On that note, what is the situation with, is there any difference between anaerobic species of bacteria and how they interact with fermentable fibers um, with acromantia? Uh, do you also, is it a symbiotic product? Is it just a probiotic? What do you uh, recommend for people when they're taking acromantia in terms of uh, you know, fermentable fiber? Um, well, we definitely recommend that people increase their fiber in their diet. I mean, that generally speaking, that's that's good for you. But in particular with these strains, that is their food. And so the product itself is actually a symbiotic. We do have some inulin in there, but it's a very small amount. It's not a therapeutic amount. It's designed to actually feed the strains. And so um, when we did our first preclinical study, we actually delivered the formulation with and without inulin. And we found that you only had efficacy when you had the inulin in there with the strains. And so I kind of liken it to, um, you know, if you're going to drop me off on a deserted island, I'd rather you drop me off with a cooler of sandwiches and beers. <laughs> so I have something to sustain me. And so we've included the sandwiches and the beers there for, for these strains in the, in the pill itself. But if you can increase your, your dietary fiber, that's also going to feed them. And then there's been some good studies showing that increasing polyphenol consumption, so uh, you know, things like cranberries, um, can also help fuel acromantia growth. And so those are also some of the things that we, we recommend. Yeah, and sometimes I, you know people with a sensitive gut can have issues with inulin and FOS and the more uh, typical prebiotic fibers, um, GOS, resistant starch. Whereas I, at least I've seen, you know, people with SIBO and some other gut issues tend to be able to tolerate polyphenols a little bit better in many cases. So that's just a consideration for folks. I know, you know, we have a lot of folks in our audience who who do have sensitive guts, and it sounds like the amount of inulin that's in the Pendulum product is is not likely to cause those kinds of symptoms because it's mostly there to just provide food for the organisms. But um, if you're actively trying to incorporate more, more prebiotics and you've had trouble with inulin or FOS, it might be worth trying more polyphenol intake. Absolutely. And and we, um, it is a very small amount, it's about 100 to 200 milligrams uh, in each dose of, of inulin. But, you know, people who are sensitive, sometimes even that is enough to kind of trigger responses. And so we actually launched a third product very recently, which we call GI Repair, and it's a step-in uh, solution. So it starts with just one strain and no, no prebiotic in it. It's just Clostridium butyricum, 
and by the name butyricum, you can tell what it does. It's a butyrate producer. Um, and so, and, and this strain has actually been studied in Japan for quite some time and, and been on the market there for IBS and IBD. And so, you know, you start with just that strain. If that's helping and you're able to uh, manage that, then the second formulation adds another strain. And so we're slowly, um, you know, getting people's microbiomes reconstituted, but it doesn't, you know, you don't go straight to five strains plus a prebiotic if that's going to cause a jolt in the system. I think that's smart. And I, I wish more companies did this because just again, as a clinician who's treated patients for 15 years, and to be fair, like a lot of the patients that I treat are pretty sick. You know, they're not, it's not just, I don't have a, a general care, you know, practice, a family medicine type of practice that's pretty specialized, but um, it's, it's often very difficult to find, I mean, probably one of the most challenging parts of my clinical career has been finding products that my patients can tolerate. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, you know, it can be a big problem, especially if you can't titrate the dose in any way, if it's a type of capsule that can't be, you know, uh, opened and where you can't, you know, cut the dosage in half or a quarter or less. Um, so it's, it's, I'm glad to see that you're taking that approach because that's very common in my experience for, for patients who have pretty significant gut issues to not tolerate probiotics or prebiotics. Yeah. And I, I, that, that, this was sort of a response to that where people were saying, this is too much. And then we'd say, we'll go from two pills a day to one pill a day and not one pill every other day. And we were like, why don't we just make a formulation that just steps people into it? And I think that's, um, you know, to your point, uh, helpful for people with sensitive guts. But what I hadn't fully appreciated was there are so many people with sensitive guts and it, it feels like that's a growing population. And, you know, as we kind of go through our the stress of everyday life and all the crazy stuff we've all been through. I think we know that stress reduces uh, your microbiome and, and you start to get depleted in certain strains. And so I think that, you know, aging and stress and all of these things are causing more and more gut issues. And so it's actually more common than not that somebody has a sensitive gut. Yeah, absolutely. That's the reality that we're living in now. And that's a product of a number of different influences, right? Everything from excess antibiotic use to um, increase in, in cesarean sections to, to decrease in breastfeeding to a whole bunch of other medications to a switch to an industrialized diet that's high in acellular carbohydrates and processed and refined foods, lower fiber intake, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I would say virtually all of the patients I've treated over the past 15 years, not all, but, you know, 80% have some gut issues, even when it's not their main complaint, right. you know, when they fill out the questionnaire, they're checking off a lot of boxes in the gut category. And, you know, that of course can be contributing to something that is their main complaint, even something like cardio, cardiovascular risk factors. Um, I've talked about this on my show before, but, very often, if somebody has high cholesterol uh, and we test them for SIBO and uh, you know or other gut pathogens and we find something and we treat those issues, their cholesterol will come down even without doing anything at all uh, that's explicitly for cholesterol reduction. So I, I think there's a lot of exciting territory still left to be explored there. 
Yeah, um, it's amazing. And and I think, you know, speaking to antibiotics and 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 things like that and and the way people are born and breastfeeding, you know, I think we also don't realize how much early life shapes the microbiomes that we have and you don't really feel it until later on in life. Um, but it's really shaped early on and you know, there was this study that came out that was recently replicated by the Mayo Clinic that showed that you know, kids under two years of age who were systematically on antibiotics were also systematically more prone to obesity, type two diabetes, allergies, ADHD, celiac disease, all of these things that don't show up until you're a teenager or in your 20s and 30s and 40s, but really got seated in, in, in the early stages of life. And for me, actually, that was one of the big reasons we started the company. Um, my daughter was born prematurely. She was on antibiotics right out of the gates, even though we had a vaginal birth, I breastfed her. You know, she got these multiple doses of antibiotics in intensive care. And when she was in elementary school, um, she had major food sensitivities. She was asking how much dairy was in, you know, the sherbet at the ice cream store. And so she's been on our product and for better or for worse, she's a teenager now uh, and she can eat whatever she wants to. And I just think that um, it became clear to me that this early microbiome depletion was potentially setting her up for, you know, a lifetime of chronic illnesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes that's not anybody's fault. <laughs> you know, it's not by choice of parent or any decisions that were made. It's just the, again, the, you know, confluence of factors, which sometimes cannot be avoided. But it's, it's good to know now, I mean, over the past few years, there's more research on how to overcome those early life deficits. And, you know, I think this is fairly new territory where we're able to now intervene, not, not just with aerobic organisms, but with anaerobic organisms. And, and that's, of course, particularly important since the colon is an anaerobic environment, and that's where most of the gut microbiota live. Um, so it's always made sense to me that we would get here. And it's great that you, you all are innovating here and doing fantastic work in this area. So where can people learn more about Pendulum and, and what you're up to? Um, we can go to our website, uh, which is pendulumlife.com. And, um, you know, we talk about all the different products on there and the science behind them. And all of the links to our publications are on the website, too. And then I think we've got, if people purchase, they can use a code, Cresser20, in order to get a discount off of their, their first membership purchase. Great. And that, that link for anyone who's interested is cresser.co slash pendulum, P-E-N-D-U-L-U-M. Did I get that right? Yep. <laughs> cresser.co slash pendulum, and you can check, check it all out. Again, if, if you're super sensitive, you might want to start with the GI repair product um, that we mentioned that is is a little bit easier to take and really just helps with butyrate production. And the reason that's a good starting place is butyrate is anti-inflammatory. And so if you can increase butyrate production, you can kind of calm the system down in my experience. Um, in fact, as a just kind of a side note, when, when we have patients with really severe GI dysfunction, particularly IBD, sometimes we will use, uh, you know, prior to having access to this kind of thing, we will use butyrate enemas. Um, that's, that's in the scientific literature. So that, you know, there's, there's a long history of, of butyrate being used for these kinds of issues. And, and so it's, it's great to see that that's a possibility here. 
Yeah, it's interesting. These butyrate, uh, you know, straight up delivery of the molecule has sort of varying results. And I don't know if you've seen that at all. Um, yeah. And and I, I think of that as a, it's it's really, butyrate is a super powerful small molecule. It's a delivery problem. So um, essentially all the colon cells use butyrate as their primary source of energy, unlike every other cell that uses glucose. And so when you're delivering this butyrate, it's basically being absorbed by every cell along the way that wants it before it gets to the actual receptor that that is you know where you're trying to get it to and so with these strains that are butyrate producers what happens is you get the strain into the colon in the right location and then they're producing the butyrate in close proximity to the receptor and so you end up helping you know with that kind of variability of of delivery yeah that's always been the issue with with butyrate is it's not the molecule itself but how to get it to where it needs to be you take it orally it often just gets digested and absorbed before it gets to the colon implanting by enema has different downsides and challenges so it's it, you know obviously the the way that makes the most sense is the way that it's normally produced right by by the colonic bacteria so um yeah great great that that you have this option for sure um so yes thank you so much for coming on colleen it's been a fascinating conversation and i'm excited to see where this goes you know what what we're going to learn over time about additional anaerobic strains that uh, have therapeutic value and you know how these and even additional benefits that acromancia has because it sounds like you know as you said you set out to really create a, gluc a blood sugar regulation product and address diabetes, but you're finding that, oh wait, this could have impacts for depression, anxiety, all kinds of cognitive and mood and behavioral issues and uh, other things that you didn't, weren't even thinking of just by the nature of how closely connected gut health is to every other aspect of health. Absolutely. It's it's just the beginnings of all the learnings and uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to bring more opportunity to help people in the future. Great. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Cresser.co slash pendulum. And the code was Cresser20. I think that was it, right? I'm, I'm really so. bad at this. <laughs> I wrote it <laughs> down. Just, uh, that's, uh, yeah, it's always there somewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, it's a pretty fascinating and promising new development. And particularly, I think if you have blood sugar issues, it's really worth exploring because there's uh, a lot of evidence now to back up this connection. So thanks everyone for listening. Keep sending your questions in to chriscresser.com slash podcast question, and we'll see you next time. When I find a company that I love and I think you'll love, I do my best to support it and help it grow. Sometimes that means just getting the word out through my podcast, emails, and social media channels. And other times that means investing in the company or joining their advisory board. If you're hearing this message, it means that I'm either an investor or advisory board member of a company that is mentioned in this podcast episode. I only invest in or advise companies with a mission and products that I truly believe in. And I hope you benefit from learning more about them and how their products can improve your life. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. 
I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.